0: Hi, my name's Stephen Crafty, I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne and I'm here with Tom McAvoy. He's currently doing his Masters at RMIT in the um, School of uh, Fashion and Textiles and one of these people you come across every so often and you think, I want to interview him and I was so excited to hear about what he's up to. Um, So welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Um, Tom, you're an interesting one. You started out um, studying photography and screen studies okay. at Deakin University. Yes. And then you um, you did an honours in media and communications. And then you went to RMIT and you won a scholarship to do research by masters. Um, very specific project, yes. looking at un- fairly unknown fashion houses in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not big names. Tell me, how did it all start? What You said Evie Hill was kind of a breakthrough for you.
1: Yes, Elvie Hill. Elvie. Um, I sort Sorry. of call it Queen Elvie. But um, so I've always been fascinated by a good story. And that's how I started with, you know, in my youth, making little films, little, creating little stories. And I think I got to a... I mean, this is not a fantastically happy story that i'm about to tell we don't want happy stories we don't want success stories (laughs) so i did try a lot of very avant-garde projects and um i was fascinated by the filmmaker uh, lars von trier and his dogma manifesto cinema and it's not a very successful technique to try and get funding when people ask to see your script and you just point to your head it's in here like i don't want to write a script i want things to happen and So that was a very unsuccessful career with that technique um so i was a bit lost um didn't really find a direction like i thought about going overseas but then um i always loved photography that was something i loved to do and i loved the era of hand coloring photography so this is a bit of a long-winded story Mm -hmm. but um so when i was feeling a bit down i would just get some friends and would recreate 1800s or early 1900s and i'll hand color, do some experiments. And so it got to the point where people really liked what I was doing. so I thought, why not? I'll get authentic clothes because we were just getting things from whatever we could find, secondhand stores, stores, op shops. And I was like, you know, I'll, I'd love to see how authentic I can actually get. So I went to see this little vintage shop that I passed, um, it was called Clara Fox and I stepped inside and had the most amazing garments and in Melbourne in Melbourne yeah and I was thinking to myself you know I was seeing all these labels of Melbourne or of Sydney and I started to get curious and um one of the garments that I had was Elvie Hill and it was an amazing garment so I started to google her I was just naturally interested um because so I was thinking maybe I did find some little bits of treasure and I've always loved this tv show called Time Team if you remember it um This fascination of just digging something up in your backyard, and it could be this ancient Roman artifact. I always loved that. Um,
0: So, so you went to investigate about Evie,
1: yeah, LV, and I couldn't really find much information out there. And just my little, I was having so much fun. I hadn't had fun with my art for quite a while, and I thought I saw an LV Hill garment for sale on Etsy. It was around $200. And I was like, this is a lot of money to spend on just like a little photo. But I was thinking to myself, it is just an incredible two piece Lurex suit with mink collars and like super. Like,
0: from the
1: 50s. Know, from, yeah, early 60s, I'll say, yeah. So I was thinking to myself, should I buy it? Should I not? This is now you're starting to put some money back into your hobby. And I thought, why not? It looks amazing. I want to take photos of it. And so I bought it. Um, and my heart started to beat a little bit faster thinking all right now you're getting into the deep end here um so the lady who i bought it from messaged me saying you live around the corner from me do you i can just drop it off and when i got that text message i was in my pajamas watching Leighton hewitt play davis cup like i don't know how many years ago <laughs> um i wasn't really in the mood to have a guest or a stranger come over and then talk about why i wanted this garment so i was about to say don't worry about it then I was thinking you know she seems so keen I want to hear it might have a good story so she came over and she first thing she asked me was like why do you want this This is such a like such an extravagant garment why do you want it and I said to her I'm sort of really interested in the history behind the garments and it's like a little hobby project that I have and then she said to me what do you know I'm related to Elvie Hill and she's still alive and I was thinking she must be quite old (laughs) and turns out she was like 96 at that stage
0: I think she died at 101 didn't she? 100
1: yeah 100 and so she said would you like to meet Elvie so then I went from a hobby into sort of like is this like a little serious project now where I'm uncovering all these like lost little legends so I said sure I just went with it and then that's when I went to the nursing home in Brighton to meet Elvie and I think talking to her and learning how successful her career was and how much she accomplished and how very little has been documented and very few people know of her
0: because she had a boutique in the top of collins street
1: correct? yes yes correct yep yeah. and just how simple like the way she spoke to me about how she stayed so successful from when she first started in the industry at in the 1930s and how she went through until the 1990s and then i had that piece like that little piece of information that dawned on me i'm like elvie you've made a dress longer than every day that i've been alive (laughs) right that's experience and you have so much knowledge of your craft and there must be so much uh, so much truth behind how you how you kept so passionate about what you did to stay so successful i just wanted to learn from that because i'd lost passion for my film work And I guess just meeting someone who through all that time stayed so, so true and so passionate towards why she did what she did. And then knowing how forgotten she'd become, I started to think if we forget about some of our greats, what hope is there for anything that I do? And I'm not even a great. And that's when it dawned on me, maybe I should actually try and bring these stories back because... So you
0: did you start just collecting Elvie's work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she obviously when you when the person who was selling them to you the relative of Elvie saw your passion she obviously assisted in getting you quite a bit in, of
1: put me in contact with Elvie's daughter um, Amanda Pellman. and you know she helped start up Mushroom Records she signed Kylie Minogue and I got access to this whole you know this whole world that I didn't know existed
0: How fantastic And so now you have uh, you've actually catalogued and archived uh, three and a half thousand items, garments, at, a, at a minimum, yeah. And you've still got one and a half thousand items in storage. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Yes. By no names, uh, by well-known names, but also unknown names.
1: Yes. I, I usually say that the term sort of once famous, because in their era, they were very, very well-known and highly respected. But the drop-off of knowledge has been quite dramatic. Oh,
0: you know, people don't seem to realise that the past is how we build the future. Mm. So who are the, who are the people that you look out for now when you're collecting?
1: Um, there's certain stories that I just, I just love tracking down. Um, Give me an example. So let's think about Alan Rabinoff. Um, Alan Rabinoff was one half of Ricky Reed, sort of a youth label of the 50s that survived probably until the 90s. But um, the first time Alan Rabinoff sort of comes up in history that i found was in a newspaper article saying he was thought of as deceased in the Second World War. And it was only when um, some... Um, it, it was in a battle in Papua New Guinea that Australian soldiers took a Japanese soldier captive. And he happened to be wearing an Australian military uniform. And then when they checked out the uniform from the Japanese soldier had Alan Rabinoff's identification so then they realized Alan was still alive and he was being held in the Changi prison camp and so he was there for two and a half years and I was able to track down his military documents and the day he got captured and and I was thinking to myself I think I've got it hard doing a master's talking about all this stuff that no one knows what I'm talking about. And I was thinking, well, Alan Alan spent two and a half years in a Changi prison camp. I think he had it harder. And then I started tracking down, you know, war documents on what happened at Changi and what he would have had to go through. And one of the first things he did after he was released from Changi was just get back into fashion and just make pretty dresses to make people happy.
0: Well, I suppose it was just an escape as well from the, the trauma that he had in the wartime. mm I just a release.
1: Yeah. And so I, I I got a lot of influence from that. Um, so when I have a bit of a rough, you know, process of of my lectures and I mean presenting my work to my supervisors if I have a rough time and I just think, Well, Alan Ravenoff, he saw some beheadings at Chang'e, I think I can get through this.
0: Um, Tom, do you kind of, I mean, there was you were showing me a document about this gold fabric, mm-hmm. a gold bathing suit that mm-hmm. was made in the 50s that's never been tracked down before.
1: I can't find much evidence, no.
0: And so does that start off the hunt? Like, it do you does. then start saying, I need that piece for my collection and where am I going to start?
1: Yes, it's... Um from all I can find, it's got they only did it for one season, the prices were very high.
0: Imagine it was pure it's, gold or gold thread,
1: yes, 22 karat gold thread, and wash and wear swimsuits, and ball gowns, and evening wear. And they did a whole series of them.
0: And who was the label again?
1: Um, so it was made by Prestige, and then um, in this document that I found, they then gave the fabric to manufacturing houses to, to produce a small range with. Um,
0: and probably in the 50s, yeah, 1951. So when optimism was starting to set in yes people said i kind of need a gold gown to lift my spirits
1: yeah oh, some some fortunate people who could afford it um and yeah. this this could be sitting in an op shop somewhere
0: or a back garden could or be. you know in a back shed yeah you know
1: i mean it might be stained green for all we know now um but <laughs> um it's out there like and reading this document, which I showed you just before, there is that optimism, what she said. Like, they were taking on the world. And Australia was taking on the world, which I absolutely love. And we shouldn't forget, in even going back before that, like, I can talk about Charles Shave, who in 1908, which is quite far back, he spoke about how he wanted to see Australian fashion ranked as highly as the French and the Italians. So we have a long history of these incredible you know, couturier or, or design-minded fashion people that we've just completely forgotten because I guess the fashion industry is quite brutal in how it is always seeking the next trend. So,
0: Well, that's in a sense why there was longevity. Um, I mean, I think fashion's much more difficult now because there isn't a look. You know, people kind of in the 50s, 60s and 70s each... Decade each year, it was a new colour, a new season. Everyone was kind of going out to buy something new. Now the idea of, you know, is kind of just having to buy something new every day or every season kind of a bit. Mm. It's just not done, mm. you know.
1: Yeah, definitely. I've sort of approached fashion not from the point of view of its primary focus is to be a garment. I've really started to look at can can a garment actually be more than just being worn? Can it actually be through use of technology or through um, all sorts of, you know, tablets or mobile phones? Can it actually just be a little conduit to history, to biographical information or...? So, Tom, what are you going to do? I mean, you've got... You've archived,
0: you've cataloged 3,500 items, which is phenomenal, really yeah. phenomenal. You've photographed them, you've, you've no where it comes from, you know, the fabric probably, you've documented everything. What are you going to do with all that information?
1: So at the moment, um, so what I've done previously is I love this concept of a swan song. And because you know how like bands, a lot of bands do their final tour or I mean... John You're fine. too young to talk about fine, yeah.
0: finality. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I just thought to myself... um The World of Cinema does it brilliantly where they have retrospective showings at the Astor and you get to see the film again. And I know music do these tours and bring back like legacy tours. I think you two are just going to replay their Joshua Tree album. And I thought to myself, what is fashion doing in regards to sort of replaying the past but treating it as a legitimate form of art still? And like you've got the word vintage, the vintage world. I I find I find that no one's really tapped this garment on the shoulder. Let's take like a garment from the nineteen fifties. This is just like this little antidote. No one's tapped it on the shoulder and said to that garment, You're old and irrelevant now. Go retire. Go quit. But um, that garment can be absolutely new to someone if they haven't seen it before. And it doesn't have to you don't have to say to it this is from the nineteen fifties and you have to look like you're from the nineteen fifties when you wear it. You can look like yourself today and wear it, and that dress can be as new as anything. So I've taken that concept, and so with LV Hill, we did a fashion show, but we didn't do it as a vintage fashion show. It was a fashion show.
0: A real-life fashion show. Mm-hmm.
1: So I was able to track down about uh, almost 100 of her garments, and we put this little show together as an experiment for the Melbourne Fashion Festival, and... She was up there in a little wheelchair talking about the fabrics and the stories behind them all. And the daughter was talking about, you know, her knowledge and sharing all these stories of behind the garments. And, and then after that, you know, I had other families contact me and say, I like what you did. I like them. So I did one for Simon Scheinberg. Even though he's passed away, his daughter wanted... What was his label? Uh, Mr. Simon. Oh, okay.
0: oh, Mr. Simon. He was kind of big. Yeah, yeah. In the 70s.
1: Yes, 60s and 70s was kind of his yeah. era. So we did a fashion show and we didn't, it wasn't like an old timey kind of thing. Um, it was really like...
0: Giving it a contemporary
1: age. Yeah. And mm. then I did one for Jill Kemmerfeld, who did the label Janelle and did that again. And then um, the next one I'm planning is with the Samuels family who did Hartnell of Melbourne. Uh, oh. And again, we're going to put that show on as if, It's all still relevant because some of the garments can be worn today, and no one would even know that it's old. So,
0: what's um, Tom? What's your biggest find apart from LV and um, which who put you on your map on the map? And it says what's something that you kind of a bit like the gold um, swimsuit that uh, you haven't found yet. I don't know how you're going to find it. I might not
1: even find it. You might. I've got photographic evidence from this booklet that I found in someone's box stuck in an attic so that's something <laughs> um but what's your biggest find in, uh, in recent times it depends f- it depends which era you think is more important than the other or which designer you think is bigger than the other well, um, in
0: your mind who was oh
1: um that's a ve- that's a very very hard question so um I-, I can tell you a couple i don't know how to rank them maybe you can rank them for me um how about i give you five and you can tell me which one you think sounds the most Okay, go okay. on. So I found a garment from Proactin's um, range that she made in the U.S. through this, I can't remember the store off the top of my head, but she had a small run of garments in the U.S. And I found one of her garments that she made for the Onward Company in Japan. I found a Norma Tullo, which was made in Japan as part of her release in Japan. Um, so those ones are quite hard to find. Um I have found uh, Ricky Reed. So, you know, the Alan Rabinoff story? Yes. The story goes on that he collaborated with a designer, Dorothy Rabinoff, but um, she moved to England to set up a Ricky Reed boutique in England in the 60s. It became one of... I've got a newspaper article where she was ranked as inside the top 10 British designers, but she was actually Australian. Um, well,
0: we often take over <laughs> people and yeah. say they're Australian when they're British.
1: Yeah. So um, she was just, you know, I've, I've tracked down her son, who's actually a, a real estate agent in the US, selling Charlie Sheen's house at the moment, uh-huh. which is a strange thing. But, no, he said that to the day she died she was Australian. She had that big, thick Australian accent. And I found some of her garments she made in England, which are uh-huh. hard to find. Um, so those ones are up there. If we're going back in the past... There was, you know the brand Leroy? I've heard of it. Yeah. There was another one before that in Sydney called Leroy of Sydney in the 1920s. And I found one of those garments, which I'm finding because a lot of them didn't have labels on them. Mm. found that one, which is really good. Um, I would say, but the one that means the most to me, um, might not be super rare, but um, it's a gold Thai silk cocktail gown from the 1960s that Elvie Hill, before she passed away, signed for me. Oh, lovely. So on the back of the dress, it's got a little signature, and I'm like, yeah, never getting rid of that one. Um, Tom, you're
0: also uh, assisting with the Georges exhibition. Yes. Which is happening in January, I believe, at the Georges department yeah, store. Yeah. What was the Georges department store in Collins Street? Correct. An exciting project. I it mean, is. for someone like you, that must be just heaven.
1: It is basically giving me license to go hunting. Um, If you can think of me as a fashion hunter with my little Indiana Jones hat on and, you know. And you're
0: working with Justin McLean?
1: Justin, yep. Um, He says to me, how the hell, um, how do I find these things that I I come up with? And it just takes a lot of looking and I love that. I love that process. I feel like a little archaeologist of fashion. And... Yes, yeah, so I've been tracking down lots of garments for him and then every... every From George's? Yes. Every month or so I might send him a, a, like a little collection of things that I've potentially found and then I've given him contact details through to the person who has it and then he'll go off and...
0: And it could be, it's not just clothing, it's memorabilia, shoes, shoes shopping bags. Shopping bags. Even
1: like wrapping, I think, that they used to wrap the clothes in. It's very detailed.
0: How exciting.
1: Exciting for those who might know what it is, but there's a, a lot of people that don't know who Georges is. So,
0: isn't that sad? Because Georges only disappeared relatively recently. Mm. The new Georges 2, which mm. was reincarnated, mm. it has—it's not that long ago. No. So, when people say Georges, never heard of it, I'm starting to feel ancient rather than just old. Yeah. What do you think young people can learn from this whole experience?
1: I think they can. So. I'm going to take from what I've learned from taking photographs of a lot of young women in a lot of the garments that I have. What makes them want to buy the garments from me and own them is they had no idea of how advanced Australia's relationship to fashion was. And how how we weren't just this little isolated country with just... Bunch of hicks. Bunch of hicks and... Um, I spoke to a French historian in fashion once and he said, you know, Australians are peasants of fashion. (laughs) Um, I think what they can learn is that whilst they live in an environment and a culture where they can access anything they, they want whenever they want and they can buy whatever they want, there's actually things in their life that they would never know existed. And there's this certain loss to that because... Um, I think you miss out on feeling very proud about the, the culture that you come from and cultural pride for me is something that c- can make people want to hold on to the past which I think can be important
0: yeah. Look Tom good luck with the Georges exhibition I'll certainly be there I'll keep hunting and um, and look, just a joy. I mean, I, I think it's it's just a reminder that younger people are still interested in history. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the basis of design. So um, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for
1: having me. This is my first podcast, so I hope I did okay.
0: I think you've been amazing. <laughs> you've been listening to Tom McAvoy. Um, he has House of Darlington. So can con- people can contact you through your website, mm-hmm. House of Darlington, and um, just quite unique. Thank you. Really, I think RMIT should be very proud to have you as a student.
1: Yeah, let's, let's see if they can um, figure out all these names <laughs> for, for what they mean.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University. Thanks so much for listening.